My favorite holiday is this week. My favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. I love it more than any other holidays in the year. And you might be surprised to hear a pastor say that, that maybe it should be Christmas or Easter, but Christmas and Easter both come with quite a bit of stress if you're a pastor. You know, it's four weeks of preparation during the season of Advent. There's several weeks in the season of Lent, all leading up to the Holy Week celebrations and all that happens and all of that. Thanksgiving is about having a nice meal. It's about sitting together with family and friends and enjoying a wonderful meal prepared for, for all to share. Now, my wife is an amazing cook, and when our, our boys were uh, living at home, we would put, she would put on a, this unbelievable meal, seven courses, all these fancy drinks, all kinds of fun things, and, and I would clean. So it was, it was a, sort of an equal sharing point, although I think cleaning is much easier than, than cooking. But I love Thanksgiving. I, I love it for a variety of reasons, not just the wonderful meal. I love for the fact that on it, on Thanksgiving Day, it is the one day that we are the United States of America. It is a day whether you are a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Sikh or an atheist or a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or an Independent, no matter who you are, where you are in this great land, we all sit down together. And if we don't offer thanks to God, all of us, we at least offer thanks and praise to each other. Thank you. Thank you we say, with one voice. It's also a day when everyone usually, underline usually, when everyone usually behaves, even your weird Uncle Bob. Do, you, do any of you have a weird Uncle Bob? Uh, Bob has different names. Sometimes she's known as Aunt Karen. Uh, other times she's understood to be Grandma Smith or Cousin Billy. Uncle Bob comes with many names, but every family has an Uncle Bob. And I want you to know this. If you don't think your family has an Uncle Bob, it may be you. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I'm here to say these things and speak the truth. That's, that's, my, that's my singular job. I love Thanksgiving. I love everything about it, the joy that it brings and all the celebrations that happen. Psalm 100 is a good word for this day. Enter God's gates with thanksgiving. Enter God's courts with praise. It's, it's a way of saying that in God's, in God's kingdom, in God's world, we will offer thanksgiving, we will offer praise, and we will offer it with one voice. This psalm, though, is more than that. It's, according to one scholar, a theopolitical bit of poetry. What this poet has done 500 years before the time of Jesus is he's taking political language, that would be used when you would go to see the king. Enter the king's gates with thanksgiving. Enter the king's courts with praise. And in, in a sense, adapted it, adopted it, made it fit within a theological understanding of who God is. And what this poet is saying essentially is, there is the king's way and there is God's way. And God's way is one that is inclusive. God's way is one that welcomes and accepts everyone. And God's kingdom, the new way, is turning the old way of kingdoms in the world upside down. There will no longer be in God's kingdom the 1% and the 10%. There will no longer be the, the billionaire class. There will no longer be a middle class and a working class. In God's kingdom, everyone will have enough. Enough to eat. A safe place to sleep. There will be shalom, and shalom is more than just simply the absence of war. It is a sense that everyone belongs. In God's kingdom, all will be friends, and grace will rule the land. 
Sometimes you may hear our clergy, some of us use the word kindom, as in K-I-N-D-O-M, kingdom. It's a way of saying that God's kingdom is truly one that creates kin, friends, brothers, sisters, siblings. In God's kingdom, all those things that we used before to divide us are gone. Because in this new kingdom, all are one. Did you know you prayed for this today? Did, did you hear it as you prayed it? Think of the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember? Thy kingdom, say it with me. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know what you're praying for? You're asking for God's way, for God's kingdom to be our way, for God's kingdom to come to us, for this rule where all have enough, where the world has grace covering everyone and all our friends, all our brothers, sisters, siblings. We prayed for that every single Sunday in this church, three times on a Sunday morning, sometimes on Wednesday evenings even. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now in ancient Israel, in Jerusalem, the king's house, the king's palace, most of the time was built right next door to the temple. It was a visual way of asking a question. Will your ultimate allegiance be with the king or with the one we worship in the temple? Now, if you read through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, and, and the rest, you'll find that the prophets were constantly in contention with the king to get the people to see that God's ways, not necessarily the king's ways, were the way that God invites us to live, including the king. To be sure that all of the king's subjects had food, that all the king's subjects had a place to live, that all the king's subjects could live together in peace and in harmony. And it was these poets, or these prophets, who constantly, constantly called the kingdom back to God's ways. The church knew about this. In the first 100, 200 years of the church, there was a phrase that was well known, Jesus is Lord. Now you hear that and you think of that as a faith statement. You think maybe that's just a way of saying what you believe. But in, in the first two centuries of the church, it was a politically rebellious act. To say Jesus was, is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. In the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord. Not only someone to be, to be worshipped, but also someone to offer praise and thanksgiving to. When those first Christians proclaimed, Jesus is Lord, they were making a theological, political statement that it's not your way, Caesar. It's not the politicians, it's not the government, it's God's way. And that is the way I'm choosing to live my life. And many times, they paid for that statement in brutal and horrific ways, there were consequences. We may not face the same consequences today, but there are some for us too, if we truly want to take Jesus' way as our way, if we want to live in this, in this way at, at all. Some of you are old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter uh, was running for president. I was only two years old back then, but I, I kind of remember, that's not true, I was in high school. <laughs> but you might remember that, that President Carter 
is a man of deep faith. Whether you like his political views and uh, understandings, you can agree, I think most of us can agree, that this lifelong Baptist has truly lived out his life in a beautiful and, and meaningful way. Even into his early 90s, he was taking the teaching of Jesus literally and seriously to care for the least of these by building homes with Habitat for Humanity. Well, back in 1976, when he was running for president, he was, of course, governor of Georgia back then, Every, every time he went to a different city on a Sunday to campaign, he always made sure, or he tried to make sure, that he would find a local church where he could worship. One particular Sunday, it's Tom Long who told this story. On one particular Sunday, he's come out of worship, out of the sanctuary. He's walking down the steps. He's got his, his aides and a few other folks with him as he's heading toward his limousine. When there's a little gaggle of reporters, and one of them shouts out a question. Mr. Governor, Governor Carter, if you become elected President of the United States... Where will your ultimate allegiance be? To the Ten Commandments or to the United States Constitution? Carter stopped. He paused for a moment to think. And he said, well, as a person of faith, as one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, of course I would. And before he could finish, one of his aides put his arm around him and, and pulled him away from the reporter, shouted back over to that one and said, Mr. Carter has to go now. We're late for an appointment and got him into a, a limousine. Why did he do that? Because he most likely was about to say, my ultimate allegiance is to the Ten Commandments. My ultimate allegiance is to the Sermon on the Mount. That would have been politically disastrous for him. He wouldn't have made it through the primaries. You see, there's consequences if we take this faith seriously. There's consequences for us if we're going to live in the way of Christ. It's John Buchanan, who's a, a great preacher, retired now, was at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. I think was here in, in, in Columbus before he went to Chicago. Maybe some of you heard him when he was here during his time. He reminded me in his sermon of the way this worked among the first pilgrims who arrived here in the United States in 1620. You recall the story, right? They were unprepared, totally unprepared for the brutal New England winters. Half of them died before the first year was complete. And really, in some ways, they probably all should not have survived, but they miraculously did. They, they, they became friends with the indigenous peoples who, who were there, who taught them how to who plant and fertilize in this particular kind, type of soil. And by the, by the following fall, at the end of October, their harvest was plentiful and bountiful. They harvested peas, squash, corn, and barley. Uh, by the way, do you know why they planted barley? To make beer. Yes, someone knows. To make beer. According to Pastor Buchanan, they had a prodigious taste for beer. They loved to drink a lot of beer. Having gone through a New England winter, I can see why that would be a, a good thing for them, perhaps, uh, in, in that celebration. The first Thanksgiving feast then featured all those vegetables along with beer and also seafood like uh, cod and striped bass and shellfish. Uh, a group was sent out to, to bring back ducks and geese. Probably not turkeys. New England turkeys back then were lean and fast and not easy to catch. That first Thanksgiving was, of course, a beautiful celebration. But according to Nathaniel Philbrick, who wrote the book Mayflower, it almost didn't happen. He said truly, as I mentioned a moment ago, those pilgrims should not have survived, not only because of the brutality of the winter, but because of the way they treated the indigenous peoples. They alienated every single one of them they met within the first month of arrival. There, there, was, there was animosity, there was tension, there was the threat of violence, and it's really kind of a miracle that they survived 
But Philbrick says they did so because of their faith. You see, the faith that they brought with them was a rigid, narrow-minded, legalistic kind of faith. They looked at the indigenous peoples and they just saw ignorant pagans who needed to be converted or killed. But something happened. Something happened. They began to look at their new friends through a God-shaped lens. They began to see them not as ignorant pagans, but as kin, as brother, sister, friend. It was their newfound faith that helped them shape their way they believed, and by that belief, changed the way they behaved. A friendship was formed, a meal was created, a celebration gave us a glimpse, just a glimpse of what it means to gather truly in thanksgiving and praise as one people. You see, Psalm 100 is an evangelical text. It's an evangelical text expressing good news to the world. What we do in worship on Sunday mornings and the hymns we sing and the readings that we proclaim in the sermons and the music and the anthems and all the rest is we give an evangelical word out to the world to say, indeed, God's love is here. God's love is real. God's love is given to everyone and all are accepted. Are you surprised that I use the word evangelical? I'm using it in its proper form. I'm taking it back from the media. The media has turned evangelical into shorthand for a narrow-minded, bigoted group of people who believe in rigid ways. That's not what it means. Evangelical means to share good news. A a little bit of Greek history here for you. Back in ancient Greece, whenever there was a battle, one of an important battle, one of the soldiers would be appointed as a runner. And when the battle was reaching its conclusion, That runner's job was to run back to the king, who would be 15 miles or 20 miles away from the the front lines. His job was to run back to the king and to proclaim good news. And he would use the Greek word, euangelizomai. As he approached the king, if the battle had been won, if the victory was secured, he would go into the king's courts with praise. And he he would say to the king in a loud voice, euangelizomai, which literally means, behold, I bring you tidings, good tidings of great joy. Have you heard that word before? It's the word of the angel to the shepherds on the night that Jesus is born. Yuangalitsomai, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. It's a word of good news. It's a word announcing that indeed God's love has come in the form of a human. And that love continues to this day to open our hearts, minds, and souls to the ways of God. I know. It might seem unusual to preach a sermon titled Gratitude and Grace when there's so much fear and worry in the world. It may seem strange to hear a sermon like this. I I scrolled through the New York Times headlines this morning at at about 5.30. It's what I do every day. I didn't read the articles today, though, because I didn't want to ruin my mood for worship. There's plenty of bad news ugly news, another shooting, people discriminated against. Racism seems to spring up here and there and and everywhere. (sighs) Why? But somehow, though, we need to take a moment to be grateful for what we have, for who and whose we are, to name, yes, the sadness and the fear and the worry 
but to proclaim again, if only just for a moment, a word of thanksgiving and praise. On Thursday, I will say thank you for a family that loves me despite myself. On Thursday, I will say thank you to my friends, friends like John, who've spoken the truth to me in the name of love, and because of their willingness to do so, I want to be their friends even more. I'll speak a word of thanks for a historic church in Columbus, Ohio, that through good times and difficult times, through every decade, through every era, has proclaimed a word of God's love and acceptance for all. I'll offer those words of thanks on this Thursday, and frankly, I will every morning this week with gratitude and grace. Amen.